I didn't even get to say good morning. Everyone quiets down. Well, good morning. Welcome to Grand Rounds. It is June, June 1st, 2016. So um, I guess the crowd settles down quietly in June. So a lot going on. As you flip the calendars, uh, please make some notes, as were shown on our slides. And I did not correct my dates, my instructory slides. But in two weeks, we still have Dr. Sam Martin, as, as well as Dr. Barton, who are finishing our our grand rounds for our senior residents series, our highly successful senior resident series. Um, the 15th of June, we'll have our culminating grand rounds of the year in two weeks from today with Quiz Bowl. And hopefully with the attendance in the room, we will gather quickly for a faculty photo immediately thereafter. So June 15th. Friday the 17th, two nights subsequent, is the House staff graduation uh, celebration banquet and uh, official send-off at the um, Dartmouth Ski Way at the McLean Family Lodge. So hopefully many of you will be able to join that. Following Monday, we welcome our new interns on June 20th at Stores Pond at the I think the Burn Pavilion. So uh, out with the old and in with the new in one uh, fell swoop weekend. And I think I can. Um, I didn't see Kathy. I think I can open up the hike for those who might be around on the 21st. We'll be meeting at the 6L conference room to take the interns up our traditional Mount Cardigan hike, which is always fun. And we try not to lose any of them on day one. Not I haven't lost yeah. one yet. We go to Mickey's for ice cream afterwards, but that's enticing. <laughs> there you go. And I don't suppose you can meet at Mickey's and root for an Enfield without going on the hike. You have to, you have to earn, the, earn the ice cream. So, so that's, uh, that's an apt segue, uh, as uh, Dr. Barton uh, is going to present um, on wilderness medicine. So uh, appropriately enough, I'm sure uh, Colleen, when she joined us uh, three years ago from Colorado, from Colorado found Mount Cardigan to be um, probably barely worthy of that moniker. But, um, but Colleen is a native of Colorado and joined us after graduating from the University of Colorado Denver School of Medicine. She had been on the East Coast previously, though, uh, receiving her undergraduate training in psychology at Georgetown University, but not without also uh, studies in New Zealand as well as um, San Juan Island. Uh, so had uh, already been quite the world traveler and bounced back to Colorado before joining us back here in the Northeast, where fortunately she will be staying for some time, at least next year, helping us uh, in the ambulatory clinic. She has uh, a publication record of posters uh, related to I didn't ask her about this. Not all it's cracked up to be a new public health campaign presented in the Society for General Internal Medicine, a Society for Hospital Medicine, as well as uh, diagnostic blood loss from phlebotomy and hospital-acquired anemia during acute myocardial infarction. So an adult, some adult medicine topics. I think this morning's um, setup is working, but um, true to form as the technology wasn't exactly cooperating on, on Colleen's Macintosh presentation. She was completely cool and calm under pressure and did not panic. Her, her friends came to the rescue, and yet ultimately Colleen got it set up and working on her own. So I think that's quite indicative of her time here with us um, in being quite unflappable, quite capable, uh, quite excellent. And we uh, look forward to your grand rounds and, and uh, quite a few more months of working together next year, Colleen.
All right, can everybody hear me in the back okay? Awesome. Okay, well, let's get started. Um, I have no financial interest to, this, to disclose this morning, and I will be talking about uh, the off-label use of two medications, acetazolamide and Crofab. So I have four objectives this morning. Um, first, to understand the topic and context of pediatric wilderness medicine, um, to understand the need for awareness and education about injuries and illnesses in kids in the wilderness, to understand the basic physiology of high altitude um, and how to recognize, prevent, and treat acute mountain sickness in kids, and understand the basic characteristics and geographic distribution of venomous snakes in the United States, um, as well as the prevention and treatment of snake bites in kids. So I wanted to go through um, at the beginning and talk about sort of why wilderness medicine um, and why I got interested in this topic. Um, and then next move on to talking about pediatric obesity um, and how sort of getting kids outside can help address this epidemic. To talk about um, pediatricians and pediatric providers' um, duty to prevent harm when we're encouraging kids to get outside. Talk about some common injuries and ages for kids in the backcountry and how to prevent some of these injuries. And then the bulk of the talk, I'll talk about two sort of special situations, so high altitude medicine and snake bites. And I know that these are not topics that are often encountered in the Upper Valley. Um, part of it is my own interest in these particular topics, but also just sort of give you a taste about um, some other topics that you're not as familiar with. So this is me in the red in the middle. This is my family. On the right is my mom, left is my dad. My sister, who's joining us here today, is being held by my aunt on the left. This is in Breckenridge, Colorado, at about 10,000 feet. And this, as a family, um, is where we spent many weekends growing up, um, in the mountains, outside, in the wilderness, and at altitude. This was definitely in the days before helmets. <laughs> so learning how to ski um, without the sort of standard safety precautions. <laughs> And then as many of you heard last year at the Quiz Bowl, um, my sister on the left and my cousin in the middle and myself on the right um, spent uh, three summers in Alaska at Alaska Women of the Wilderness Camp. And for us, this was a time for us to be outside, to be physically active, um, to gain some independence, and then also learn about how to be safe in the, in the backcountry, in the wilderness. So in the United States now, uh, there's approximately sort of anywhere between 17 to 20% of kids who are obese. And certainly, you know, part of the pediatric obesity epidemic um, is driven by excess screen time and lack of physical activity. Obviously, the you know, obesity epidemic is multifactorial, and physical activity is only one part of it. Um, but it's a large part of it, and it's certainly our responsibility to help address this epidemic. Um, and as pediatricians, we want to encourage kids to be physically active and get outside, but we also want to make sure that we're doing it safely. So in 2002, um, this particular study looked at how many of the people sort of outside backpacking in the wilderness are kids, and they found about one quarter of all people who are getting outside are kids. 
I think on, on the one hand, there's a lot of kids who are less active, who are inside, who are not moving, who are on their iPads, on their screens. But then there's also this other sort of smaller group of people for which this is a new fad about getting your kids outside and going backpacking. Um, this particular magazine cover shows um, you know, bedtime in the backcountry, tips on how to take your kids overnight um, on overnight treks this summer. Um, and not necessarily all of these families have the skills to be able to do this, um, but it's certainly uh, something that they're excited to do. And I, you know, we should be encouraging that, for sure. So when we're talking about wilderness, what exactly do we mean? Um, on the right is a quote from the Wilderness Act about sort of the federal protection of wilderness land. Um, so an area where the earth and its community of life are untrammeled by man, where man himself is a visitor who does not remain. Um, but on the left, there's a number of synonyms for what we're talking about wilderness. So um, it can be in the bush, in the boonies, in national parks. There's um, sort of front country and back country. Um, and then at the bottom is the term rural. And I think this is part of where our community sort of overlaps with the concept of rural and the concept of wilderness. Um, I think that they can sometimes be interchangeable and sometimes they can be different terms. Um, for the sake of this particular talk, I want to I want to sort of get the idea that wilderness is outside of well, obviously outside of a hospital, but also outside of a range for which it's easy to get to a hospital. So outside of where you can call nine one one, you can drive quickly to medical care. Um, and certainly, some of the rural parts of our state absolutely fit this particular definition. Um, we know that you know even if it's not sort of traditionally you know backpacking in the woods, um, we have plenty of families that are snowmobiling, that are hunting, that are far away from medical care. And oftentimes people sort of think of wilderness um, where I grew up, so like the vast sort of spaces in the Mountain West. Uh, but it definitely, um, we have plenty of wilderness here in New England. Um, and Mount Washington is one of those places where um, we can often hear of people um, going out under underprepared or unprepared um, for the lack of access to medical care and the change in weather conditions for sure. So I wanted to highlight two different studies that looked at some of the demographics of kids outside. So the first study is looking at um, kids who are less than uh, equal to 19 years of age um, and looking at two years in the national park data. And so there are 356 deaths, um, and 13% of those deaths were in kids 19 and, um, and under. The next study I wanted to highlight, one, because it you know, adds to this particular um, topic, but also because, little known fact, Dr. Chupkin was part of this research back in 1998. Um, but we, the, she looked at fi a five-year study in Washington State, so there were 40 um, wilderness recreational deaths for kids between 12 months and 19 years. So absolutely, kids are outside, they're being active, and they're getting hurt, and they're at risk for um, severe consequences such as death. The National Park Service has a, sort of one data set where a lot of this, um, this data comes from. This one lo was looking at national parks on the left, and then the red box is looking at the percentage of total injuries for the um, age groups of 0 to 12 and then 13 to 19. So anywhere between 37 and 3% on average, about 20% um, of these injuries are in kids and adolescents. And just to note, the far right-hand column, it's a little hard to see, but um, 
the actual activities for which these injuries are occurring are pretty common. They're hiking, um, they're climbing, they're mountain biking. They're not sort of the more typical, you know, things that you think are risky, like skydiving or <laughs> something like that. Um, so this is also from the National Park Service data. This is looking at all comers, so adults and kids alike. Um, and the looking at the percent of search and rescue calls and um, what activity they were associated with. So again, super common things like hiking, day hiking accounted for almost 50% of all of the search and rescue calls, boating um, for about 20%. Um, and then you can see as it goes down in the left side, um, you sort of have some of the more dangerous type things. Um, but are not certainly um, accounting for the vast majority of those calls. In this particular data set uh, for the search and rescue um, calls, so 14.2% of those calls were for kids 13 to 19, and 7% were for kids 0 to 12. So again, about 20% of all these calls are for kids. So what are we doing about all of these uh, injuries, and how can we learn how to prevent them? So wilderness medicine as a um, sort of like medical field is new. Um, it's certainly emerging, emerging, and there's more and more data that's coming out of this particular field. This text is the sort of basis for much of the information in wilderness medicine. Um, as in all things pediatrics, there is a lot less about kids out there than there is about adults, as, um, as you all know. Um, and just to give you a sense, so in this particular textbook, there's over 100 chapters, and there's only one chapter that's dedicated to kids in the wilderness. Um, so I wanted to highlight for this crowd today, um, what are some of the pediatric concepts that make wilderness medicine different for kids than it is for adults? So the first thing, and you know, part of this is you know, preaching to the choir. Of course, you all know that kids are different from adults, and these concepts are a little bit different in kids. But I think it's important to highlight that certainly for pre-verbal kids, communication is different. And even for early verbal kids, um, uh, you know, in a place where you're trying to understand if kids are hungry and tired and what they need, um, you know, even that sort of newly verbal age, that communication can be difficult. And then especially if there's injury or illness, trying to understand what some of the symptoms are absolutely can be difficult in this age group. Kids' body surface area, uh, again, is different. So younger kids have a larger body surface area, um, which puts them at much greater risk for temperature extremes. So hyperthermia, hypothermia um, for younger kids um, is a much bigger deal. And they have a much harder time thermoregulating. As we know, kids are dependent on adults um, for their backup plans, for their extra gear, for their extra food and water. Um, and especially younger kids' attention span in a place where you don't have sort of extra activities going on um, can be a challenge. Teenagers as well, um, perhaps at times, have some judgment um, challenges. <laughs> and in a place where um, the consequences can be dire and access to care is difficult, these particular decisions sometimes um, really, at, at many times, can be fatal. Um, and then I wanted to highlight also part of what is so fun and exciting about getting kids outside is that they are excited about exploring their environment. You know, they want to check out how the, you know, how the leaves, you know, grow 
now and what's around the next corner. And part of it is, you know, this is what is so fun about getting kids outside. Um, but it also puts them at risk for going too far and going to a place that they've never been and puts them at risk for injury. So wilderness medicine, uh, sort of by definition, is a little bit different than medicine in a place like this, in a big hospital. Um, there's four, I sort of wanted to highlight five different things. So there's four things that are um, non-modifiable that make wilderness medicine different. So we're talking about location, the terrain, the time to care, and weather. So these are all things that are um, really important and affect how medicine can be provided in the wilderness, but there's really nothing that you can do about it besides sort of knowing what you're getting into before you go out there. And then finally, um, supplies. And this is a, something that is a bit modifiable, and I wanted to talk about a little bit. Um, before we talk about the supplies, uh, the vast sort of like, um, majority of preparation and prevention for injuries in the backcountry um, is knowing your resources, knowing where you're going and your surroundings, having a plan, and telling someone where you're going. So let's talk about what can be a little bit different um, in a medical kit for kids. Um, I, don't, I won't go through each one in detail, but just a couple of things to highlight. So absolutely extra food and water, um, a waterproof shell, and extra layers. Um, for younger kids, this is something that their caregiver, their parent will carry. Um, and then for older kids, certainly, you know, when they're able to carry a little bit more on their own, these are great things for them to carry in their own pack. Um, I wanted to highlight a whistle. It's not something that people necessarily always think about, um, but can be life-saving um, for a kid to just have it pinned onto their, um, onto their shirt, um, and it can help them in a place if they uh, are, are lost or you know, unable to be found. Really, that noise can travel um, a long distance. Medications certainly can be helpful, thinking about keeping the weight down, so anything that you're carrying in, um, you're carrying on your back, so things like chewable Tylenol um, take a little bit of the weight off, um, and then certainly EpiPens for when the situation is correct. DEET is absolutely safe in kids and effective and should be used. <laughs> um, any sort of foot care absolutely um, is important to remember, especially for longer trips outside. and then. For this, for this crowd, certainly sort of depending on your level of comfort, there are absolutely some extra things that you can take um, if you're traveling with, with you know, friends or kids to be able to provide the kind of care that you're trained to provide in a hospital. Um, this includes things like stereostrips, glue, if you have a gaping wound, um, a safety pin absolutely can help in a pinch. I, I know a number of people who will carry their own suture kits out into the wilderness. Um, some people have carried oral, oral airways um, or LMAs. I mean, you know, you have to be able to use them and use them comfortably, but um, it has been done. All right, so um, I'd like to move on from sort of the general overview of pediatric wilderness medicine and talk about high-altitude medicine, which is, um, like I mentioned in the beginning, a particular interest of mine given that this is where I grew up. Well, not here in this, in this place, um, but at a higher altitude. So uh, before we're able to talk about high-altitude, we sort of need to define what exactly we mean by high-altitude. So. Um, 
the column on the left is the altitude in meters. Um, the next column, I know it's hard to see the numbers, but each um, box represents 1,000 feet. Um, so all the way on the bottom right is lowly Lebanon, New Hampshire, um, down here at 581 feet. A high altitude is defined as 1,500 meters um, to 3,500 meters. So this area includes places like Denver, Colorado, the top of Mount Washington, um, Mexico City, Breckenridge, where I showed you the picture in the beginning, um, and Cusco, Peru. Um, the next sort of very high altitude is 3,500 meters um, to 5,500 meters. This includes the tops of many of, many of the peaks in, um, in North America um, in the continental United States. Um, and so this is you know, often a place where people um, will go for the day, but not necessarily spend a long um, period of time. And then extreme altitude is above 5,500 meters. So this includes um, the top of Denali in Alaska at 20,000 feet and all the way to the top of Mount Everest at 29,000 feet. Um, are these categories based, is this based on uh, medicine? Do they make these categories because of physiologic changes or does it have nothing to do with that? Uh, no, this is based on physiologic changes. So most people um, can live easily in high altitude. Very high altitude, um, there are some small communities for which people live and, and can survive. Um, and then extreme altitude is where people cannot survive, where your basically your cells, cells start to die. So we can't really talk about high altitude without going back to the basics. Um, about, and so I wanted to talk through the alveolar gas equation. So high altitude physiology and pathophysiology is absolutely complex, and it is not my goal to go through all the complexities of that. Um, but the alveolar gas equation can really help us understand what some of the consequences of going to altitude are. So starting on the left, the PaO2 is the partial pressure of oxygen um, in the alveolus. And this is roughly equivalent to the fraction of inspired oxygen, the FiO2, uh, times the atmospheric pressure minus the partial pressure of water, and then subtract the partial pressure of CO2 um, in the artery, which is equivalent to the alveolus. Uh, divided by the respiratory quotient, which is a ratio of the basically the oxygen you inspire in and the CO2 that you breathe out. For the purpose of this discussion, this is roughly a constant. For most people, it's about around 0.8, so we'll just assume that this is a constant today. So the combination of the FiO2, the atmospheric pressure, and the partial pressure of water can be condensed into one value, the PiO2, which is the... Um, the, basically the fraction of inspired oxygen. So the FiO2, remember, at sea level is 21%. At 10,000 feet, it's 21%. At 29,000 feet, it is still 21%. Um, and so that particular value changes when the atmospheric pressure changes. The FiO2 can change if you are taking supplemental oxygen, but it doesn't change based on the atmospheric pressure. So as we go up in elevation, so hiking up, the atmospheric pressure drops and your PiO2 gets smaller. So for the body to try and compensate and keep the PaO2 at a sort of normal physiologic level, um, we try to make the PaCO2 smaller. And you do that by hyperventilating. Um, so that drops your um, CO2. 
at lower altitudes, the, this particular equation um, doesn't really affect, so, so the next sort of piece of this is your oxygen carrying capacity. Um, and so these small changes in PaO2 at lower altitudes don't make a huge difference on your oxygen carrying capacity, but um, at those really, really high altitudes, these small changes actually make a large difference in your oxygen carrying capacity. So, the body first um, can change the CO2 by hyperventilating. Um, so breathing faster decreases your CO2 and increases your PaO2. The next thing that the body tries to do um, is correct this initial respiratory alkalosis by excreting bicarbonate. Um, and the kidneys do this, but they don't do it nearly as fast as the lungs do. Um, and so the process of acclimatization or sort of these particular physiologic changes um, I have been taught and often like to think of uh, in a rule of threes. So in the first three seconds, the body can make quick changes in ventilation. So you can breathe faster in those first three seconds. It takes about three days for the excretion of bicarbonate to sort of help correct that respiratory alkalosis. And then it takes about three months for those longer changes in oxygen carrying capacity um, and the body's ability to build more hemoglobin um, to really make a big difference. So this initial process between hyperventilation and cr the correction of the respiratory alkalosis um, leaves us for you know, a couple days of um, what is called hypobaric hypoxia and this process of acclimatization. This particular time frame is where things can go wrong. Um, the body usually is pretty good at making these changes and acclimatizing, um, but for whatever reason, for some people, um, this change, sort of this period of change, can result um, in problems and sort of derangements in, in acid base status. And this, in some people, leads to symptoms. And for whatever reason, we're sort of not really sure. Genetics, sort of other factors, doesn't affect other people. Well, what we do know is, in you know, looking at sort of population-wide studies, um, this is for visitors between 6,000 um, and about 10,000 feet. About 25% of visitors to a moderate altitude will have some sort of symptoms of being at high altitude. Um, this has been replicated in kids. The, kid, the studies in kids are a bit smaller, um, and so they've shown anywhere between 20 and 30 percent, but about, you know, roughly about the same amount of kids going to high altitude will have symptoms. So there's two physiologic pathways um, that have that are sort of affected by high altitude. So one is the brain, and the other is the lungs, and so we'll go through them sort of each separately. The first, um, and absolutely hands down, the most common symptom of being at high altitude is a high altitude headache. So this is a frontal throbbing headache. It gets worse when you go up in altitude. It goes away when you go back down. The next in this particular physiologic pathway is acute mountain sickness. So this is the high altitude headache plus feelings of anorexia, um, a feeling really fatigued, um, and generally just feeling quite unwell. And then there's sort of mild, moderate, and severe acute mountain sickness. And then the next um, most severe case is high-altitude cerebral edema. So it's sort of felt that this pathway is part of a physiologic, sort of one physiologic process. And so, as we know, cerebral edema, so this is you know, acute mountain sickness that's marked with ataxia um, and altered mental status and other signs of cerebral edema. Um, but if we can recognize a high altitude headache and acute mountain sickness early, we could help to intervene and prevent cerebral edema.
um, in the lung side of things. So hypoxia um, causes a constriction of the vascular bed in the lungs, causing pulmonary hypertension. Um, as that worsens, interstitial edema can occur. And then finally, high-altitude pulmonary edema. So in kids, for um, you know, reasons that are unclear to science at the moment, there's a subset of kids who live at high altitude. Um, so this is where they are born. This is where they live. They go down to a regular elevation. And then when they go back up to altitude, um, they end up having what's called a reentry pulmonary edema. It doesn't happen so much in adults. Um, and so nobody really knows why it happens, but it does in kids. So. Cerebral edema and pulmonary edema um, are, are dangerous and life-threatening, and so the vast majority of the recommendations for treatment of symptoms um, is to prevent these two things from occurring. Um, but before we treat them, what we, can, what we can talk about to try and prevent them. So the period of hyperbaric hypoxia and acclimatization um, takes time. So if we can lengthen that time at a lower altitude, um, we definitely can prevent high altitude sickness. So slowly going up in altitude and sleeping at a lower altitude um, can prevent a lot of the symptoms of high altitude. Um, for a place like Colorado, where I grew up, we often recommend people, you know, if they leave in a place, so often, what people want to do is they have a week of vacation, they want to fly in, they want to drive up to the mountains and hit the slopes, and they feel terrible. Um, and so what's recommended is, you know, flying into Denver, spending the night, um, you know, driving up to the mountains between 8,000 and 10,000 feet, taking a low-key first day, and then the day after, starting to get active. And that really can prevent a lot of the symptoms of high-altitude sickness. Um, hydration can help counteract the natural diuresis of extruding bicarbonate. Um, and then acetazolamide is a medicine I'll talk about in a couple minutes that can help, for some people, prevent um, altitude sickness. So treatment for uh, high-altitude headache um, and the sort of mild altitude sickness, um, the best things are time, absolutely. Fluids, rest, and ibuprofen as fix most things in life, um, <laughs> but, but fix this as well. Um, certainly, uh, oxygen can address the hypoxia. Acetazolamide is a medication um, that is a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor and sort of um, mimics the job that the kidney does of excreting bicarbonate, but does it faster um, and more effectively and sort of has some other um, effects that nobody really knows why, but I seem to work. Dexamethasone is certainly a treatment for cerebral edema. Um, nifedipine can be a treatment in kids for um, pulmonary edema. And then nitric oxide in the PDE um, PDE5 inhibitors are used in adults in pulmonary edema, but really um, haven't been used or, or recommended for use in kids. And then places like um, you know, Everest Base Camp or different study, study places, a hyperbaric chamber absolutely can counter the effects of um, high altitude, but aren't, <laughs> aren't that common and aren't, aren't used that frequently. And then, uh, by far and away, the best way to treat any sort of high-altitude illness is to go back down, um, and certainly doing it with supplemental oxygen. So I wanted to go through a couple of questions that you might get in an office setting um, about going to high-altitude. So first, can our new baby visit her grandparents at a resort in the mountains? 
And um, the answer to this question is if the child is otherwise healthy kid, um, typically it's recommended to wait after four to six weeks of life. So in that early couple of weeks, um, hypoxia can induce a return to fetal circulation, so having blood th flow through that PDA or a PFO, um, so it's not recommended. How should we prepare for our family vacation to Machu Picchu? <laughs> um, so when you're flying to Machu Picchu from a place at sea level, you're basically going from sea level to an altitude greater than 10,000 feet sort of in your initial flight. Um, this puts you at a much higher risk of, of altitude sickness. Um, so this would be a place where acetazolamide is indicated given as a prescription to a family. Um, you don't necessarily, so the indications aren't necessarily that you have to take it. Um, really, for acetazolamide, the true indication for taking it is if you'd had um, altitude sickness in the past. Although I will say that sort of colloquially, most people will just take it anyway to try and prevent some of the symptoms if, if you're at higher risk. But for this kid, the 11-year-old who was, you know, certainly felt terrible the last time he skied, he should get um, acetazolamide the next time he goes to altitude. Uh, sometimes, so for any given individual, um, you may, even if you get altitude sickness once, you may not get it the next time that you go to high altitude. And finally, can our four-year-old go to Everest Base Camp? <laughs> so Everest Base Camp is at um, just over 17,000 feet. Um, it is a place where all of your physiologic processes um, don't work as well. So it's harder to think, it's harder to eat, it's harder to breathe. Um, it is far from medical care and really is not a place that's safe for kids. Um, so the answer to this question is no, please do not bring your child there. As pediatricians, I wanted to highlight just a, a couple of special cases um, that you should consider if you have someone who's thinking about going to high altitude. Um, so any child with trisomy 21 is at higher risk of complications, um, in part because of some of the hypoventilation and obstructive apnea um, that can occur, and then also the association with congenital heart disease. A recent viral illness can put a child at greater risk of pulmonary edema at high altitude. Um, like I mentioned, pulmonary hypertension that is, uh, is already there can be worse at high altitude. Um, and then the effects of hypoxia for some congenital heart disease can be um, detrimental. For kids with CF, um, absolutely with well-controlled CF can go to altitude, but um, it can be at higher risk of hypoxia. Sickle cell or sickle trait um, are at much higher risk of a sickle crisis at high altitude. Um, we talked about kids less than six weeks. And then some of the uh, sequelae of prematurity, like BPD and, of course, pulmonary hypertension, um, can put kids at higher risk um, when they're in high altitude settings. Okay, so let's uh, move away from the mountaintops and we'll talk a little bit about snake bites. <laughs> So I wanted to talk about snake bites today um, because I'm deathly afraid of snakes. <laughs> um, I really, like, genuinely do not like them. And part of me sort of looking into the subject is because I just thought, okay, somehow if I can know my enemy, um, it can be a little bit safer. Uh, <laughs> so um, I hope I can give you some information to sort of help prevent uh, a snake bite from happening and know a little bit about what to do if you encounter one. 
So the Crotalinae family is a family of snakes um, that are the sort of majority of poisonous snakes in, in the United States. Um, so top left is a rattlesnake, the, the copperhead, and the cottonmouth snake. The cottonmouth is also called a, a water moccasin. Um, so these snakes, um, they hunt warm-blooded prey, um, typically small rodents, and they have these super cool heat-sensing pits um, that can sense heat. Uh, they do not discriminate well between, um, you know, small rodents and small children, um, so this is sort of part of why this is important. The cottonmouth lives in the southern part of the United States. Um, the copperhead lives a little bit further north, but still in the sort of mid-Atlantic region. A lot of the um, research and data about snake bites in kids comes from Texas Children's Hospital, um, and this is um, where a large um, population of the copperhead snakes are. And then the rattlesnake, which um, is, is, you know, lives in most of the United States, not in the sort of um, upper part of the um, sort of central United States, and then also notably not in the Upper Valley. <laughs> um, the, so the rattlesnakes, so there was just an article in the Valley News um, a couple days ago talking about the number of snake bites in um, this area, and I think on record there were like five snake bites total. They do, the timber rattlesnake does live in the southern part of the state, um, and they, so they, they exist um, around here. For people here, what you may see if, you, if there's not someone that necessarily had a snake bite you know, out the front door, um, people do keep snakes as pets, and certainly these result in snake bites as well. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so in the United States, there are between 3,000 and 8,000, sort of depending on the study, snake bites each year. Um, these are typically in sort of younger um, adolescent to sort of 20-year-old males who are provoking snakes. Um, they are rarely fatal, only five to six um, fatalities a year. And almost all of the snake bites are from this Crotalinae, the pit, viper, the pit viper family. Um, there are coral snakes in the United States. That's the one other venomous snake. Um, they live in sort of this, there's three different regions in the south, but um, are not really part of the, the vast majority of all snake bites. So snakes have two bites. They have a predatory bite and a defensive bite. And only the predatory bite results in envenomation. Um, so not all bites actually uh, have the transfer of venom from the snake to its victim. So this said, um, one of the most common reactions to a snake bite that's not re a result of the venom is sheer terror. <laughs> um, so nausea, vomiting, and syncope can all be um, results of just fear and not so much the venom. Uh, the, fang, the fang marks of a snake can be really helpful in um, trying to treat a snake. Um, I will talk about that in a second. And then most snake bites are painful, except for this really creepy snake, the Mojave rattlesnake, which has a painless bite. <laughs> So this is a little boy who presumably um, put his hand in the wrong place, was either you know, hand in a, in a like, small crevice or on a rock and got bit by a snake. Uh, there's two, you can see sort of two, like, almost like a V, um, where the fang marks are. And so the distance between those marks is called the interfang distance. Um, and that is equivalent to the size of the snake. And the size of the snake um, is is sort of equivalent to the amount of venom. So the bigger the snake, the more venom that is transferred. So most importantly, how can we stay away from these things? Um, 
I, the biggest thing is to know where they live and just to recognize that they exist and that you are sharing your space with them. So if you're out with a young child and you know someone unfortunately gets struck, uh, do not assume that it was not a venomous bite. Assume all snake bites are venomous until proven otherwise. Please get away from the snake, <laughs> please. Um, even a dead snake, so even if you kill the snake, it can still have a reflex that um, can envenomate its prey after it's dead. Um, so removing some constricting items um, and then cleaning that area and marking it um, with like a Sharpie marker to sort of see if that area swells can be helpful. Um, keeping the affected area at the level of the heart, so too high, and it can result in increased um, circulation of the venom. Too low, it can increase the tissue edema. Um, and then really, the most important thing is to get to medical care. I wanted to highlight that poison control is an awesome resource um, for all things snake-related. They have a database of old anti-venom that exists in the United States. So even if you don't know which hospital to get to that, to has, that would have anti-venom, they will know. Um, most hospitals will carry the anti-venom, which I'll talk about in a minute, for this snake family. But if it's an exotic snake, if it's a snake that you're, you don't know what kind, um, many zoos carry sort of other snake anti-venom. They also can be a good resource for basic first aid um, if it takes some time to get to a hospital. So a couple things not to do. Um, and these are widely circulated on the internet. And even just yesterday, um, we did a we were doing prep questions, and this was one of the prep questions. So I, I promise it's relevant. Um, so uh, things not to do, like we talked about before, don't pick up the snake, don't try to trap it, just please get away. Um, don't wait for, for symptoms to appear. Um, tourniquets actually can increase the risk of tissue edema and tissue necrosis, and should not be used. Uh, slashing the wound with a knife only worsens the wound. Um, there are these plastic, uh, like wound aspirators, extractors um, that are supposed to suck out the venom. They don't work, and they worsen the tissue um, necrosis. Ice also can worsen tissue necrosis, and then um, drinking caffeinated beverages can increase the circulation of the venom and is not recommended. So the, um, the pit viper venom is a zinc-dependent metalloproteinase. It's hemotoxic and, like I mentioned, can lead to hypoperfusion and tissue necrosis. Uh, because kids are smaller and the size of the snake um, is related to the amount of venom that's transferred, um, kids are basically at higher risk for complications because they have a larger, way of smaller circulating volume compared um, to the amount of, of venom that's transferred. So Crofab is the name of the anti-venom to treat this particular snake family. So Crofab is, um, so basically snakes uh, envenomate sheep. Sheep build antibodies. Those antibodies are extracted from the sheep. Um, they're cleaved, um, so the FAB portion of the antibody is cleaved from the FC portion. Um, and then it is, um, sort of put in these vials that can be reconstituted. So Crofab is the Crotalinae FAB, um, and that's sort of how they named the antivenom. The biggest risk for this medication is hypersensitivity, um, but for the vast majority of snake bites, the risk of hypersensitivity is weighed with the risk of the complications of envenomation, um, and so typically sort of treating the hypersensitivity reactions is recommended. 
COFAB was FDA approved for adults in 2000. Uh, it's not FDA approved for kids, but is absolutely recommended and has been used effectively in kids. Um, the dose is not different for kids, so it's just based on the amount of venom. So same dose for kids as you would use for an adult. Um, and like I mentioned, there are very few relative contraindications. Typically, it's just trying to sort of um, support some of the other complications that can, that can come with the COFAB. Uh, like I mentioned a couple minutes ago, so Texas Children's definitely does the bulk of the research in this area. Um, and they've put uh, together sort of four wound classes um, to help us sort of get an understanding about the severity of snake bites. So that first wound class is just a minor injury and puncture months only. So these are what we would call like a dry bite or no venom um, was injected into the victim. Uh, all kids should be observed for at least six to eight hours, either in an ED or overnight in a hospital setting, um, to monitor for any effects. The wound class two is a moderate injury and can have some sort of cellulitis or bruising. Um, those kids may or may not get antivenom. And then three and four, absolutely, there are indications for antivenom. These are kids that have um, tissue necrosis and purulent material, and um, uh, the wound class four is other systemic symptoms. So these are kids that are in a hospital in an ICU setting um, and sort of being supported. All right. so. Um, let's sort of go back to the beginning uh, and recap. So I wanted to, and hopefully I've conveyed today that I think it's important to get kids outside. Um, and get them moving, get them outside, exploring. Um, it's important, it's fun, um, and it's our job to be able to do, help families do it safely. Uh, absolutely, please know your environment and be prepared prior to getting out there. Um, for altitude, starting at a low altitude, going up slowly, staying well hydrated, and the use of acetazolamide can prevent most mountain sickness. And for snakes, uh, please avoid getting attacked at all costs. Um, but really, if you um, are in the situation where you're bit by a snake, anti-venom and hospital care really is the way to go. <laughs> so, I just wanted to highlight, I wanted to thank Kathy and Sam for helping with the, um, with the talk and the residents who have already heard parts of it. Um, and then my husband and my sister who are here today and my parents um, who are totally up for adventures at all costs. So. <laughs> Thanks. So that was a tour de force. Respiratory physiology, immunology, and snakes. <laughs> As expected. So you definitely took us on an adventure. Dr. Neff. So um, there's a lot of myths around snakes. Um, and there's a lot of them in Eastern Washington. We were always told you have you should go out in cowboy boots because they all aim low. They're all going to aim low your ankles, and so if you wear your cowboy boots, you're good to go. <laughs> and you're supposed to carry a stick with you because they don't they want to be wet. So I won't. I'll, I'll just get away. But, but is there any data on what on? I mean, obviously, if you're a little kid, like reaching in, and little kids are low. But I didn't know if there's anything that, like clothing wise, would really protect you. Yeah. Um... Cowboy boots and then also jeans actually can prevent the transmission of venom. Uh, it's usually in a desert when you say like hiking jeans, it doesn't go over very well, but um, it can help with snakes. Uh, and then um, 
the stories about sort of like holding a stick with a snake really are where people get into trouble um, because they're usually not long enough and the snake can actually strike further than you anticipate. Um, the one story um, that's in the newspaper about a, a person in Vermont used a tongue depressor to try and like get the snake away. Um, so that part's really not recommended, but certainly boots, jeans can be helpful. Yeah. Back to neighbor. I, I recently saw a movie um, <laughs> where this uh, young boy is sitting in this self-filled cabin in the woods, and um, and so there's a, I think a rattlesnake or some kind of kind of wooden snake, and, and so he sees it and and he um, uh, and he and then he slows down his heart rate because he knows that the rattlesnake can sense. Here, it will not attack him if, if he's like really calm. Is that true? I, I honestly have no idea. I don't know. I don't think so. I doubt they can sense fear, but I mean, if so, I would have been struck many, many times. So I doubt it. I spent about 20 years in Oklahoma and snake bites There is a group of people who do rattlesnake roundups. <laughs> and they consider themselves very brave and so on. They have very common cognitive They feel like they're totally in control. And every year somebody gets better. <laughs> and I can't say that the cowboy boots are rule of thumb too, because you have warm ankles if you're wearing sneakers. Uh, socks, but it's not foolproof. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. So, Colleen, thank you. That was really helpful. I did not know that we didn't have rattlesnakes up here. I'm from Connecticut, where we had rattlesnake mountains. So, I always, I mean, I listen for them. So, you just made my day. Thank <laughs> you. Um, I have two questions and then a comment. Um, actually, one question. Um, how long does it take for snake bite to show effect? Because you said stay overnight in the hospital. So how, if, if someone is, I guess I can't say in the woods of Maine, but yeah. if someone is in the wilderness somewhere where there are rattlesnakes and you get a phone call, what, how, and they instantly take them X number of hours to get out, how long would you expect before we would know if it's a dry bite or if they were envenomated? Yeah, usually the first hour is when you have sort of the local effects of and like where the snake has bitten you, you sort of have some of that edema. But the systemic envenomation that can take anywhere from like the two hours to the eight hours, um, depending on the amount of venom and the size of the person. Um, the other question is: Is crocodile something people carry with them, or is that something you go and get at the hospital? So. Um, Mostly in a hospital. Um, we ha actually we have it here in our hospital. I don't. When I was speaking with the um, pharmacist, we haven't used it in like decades, but <laughs> but it is here. Um, it's typically not. You know, I don't know if people carry it. What I have read is that like in search and rescue like cabins, it can be held. So like in Yosemite National Park, for example, there's a lot of snake bites, and so the search and rescue group there they keep their um, anti venom in like their cabin that can be that can be moved and taken to where they need um, to go to. But I, I can't say that I've heard of people that like carry it with themselves on a backpacking trip. It, they may be out there, but I just don't know about it. And just a final comment. Um, there's been a lot of stuff in the news just last week of some pretty bad things that have been discovered or found up in Mount Washington. There was a person who yeah. died at uh, Tuckerman's Ravine last week, and there was a body of a woman uh, who had gone hiking in the whites, and she'd been missing for many years. So yeah. 
we are not immune to this, and so and we are the local children's hospital, so it is something I'm really glad you brought this up because um, we do have a lot of people going out fairly remote, and even if you are only on the map um, in Warner, there was a plane crash on Warner this past weekend, and they had to search and rescue in the in the night with trains chainsaws to get up there to rescue the two people. So it happens locally. So bring this up. Nice job. Thanks, Dr. Albert. Totally, that was really excellent, and um, I just want to make a couple of comments, but correct me if I'm wrong. Um, if you use Diamox, I think the recommendations are to start it a day before, at least one day before you go to altitude. That's correct. It takes a while to work. Mm -hmm. um, the second is that um, mountain sickness and uh, acute pulmonary edema and uh, acute cerebral edema are more insidious than people think, because they're climbing and they're fine. And they get to a uh, you know a um, stop site, and then they um, erect the tent, and they go to bed. And the circadian rhythm rhythm decreases your respiration rates at night, so people get altitude sickness at night. Mm -hmm. And then it's dark, and they can't go down. Or if they do choose to go down, they're really um, taking a lot of risk. So. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're going to go above 3,000 meters, I would suggest sharing dexamethasone with you. It could save your life. Absolutely. For um, so for groups that um, like Knowles, for example, so the National Outdoor Leadership School um, is a group that takes children and, and um, younger adults into the wilderness, and they do carry that with them. It's not something that I think that um, not everybody carries it with them, but they um, they certainly do. Yeah. Um, on the description of the snake bites, you said with a level two injury, they may or may not get anti-venom, and I was wondering what, why they might not get it. Like, what would be the potential downside of getting? Um, so the. There aren't well. There, the downside is the risk of hypersensitivity for sure. That's the biggest risk. The data is in uh, mostly from Texas Children's Hospital, and they have copperhead snakes there, and they are, um, I guess, I would say, like much more experienced in this particular field, and they feel like there's um, they have used their clinical expertise to sort of parse out a group of that level two or wound class two. Um, that they can get away with just observing and not using the CROFAB. But I, uh, for the rest of the literature, for people that are less comfortable using it, um, sort of just knowing what some of the risks are, it's, it's usually recommended to use in, in, if you have any concern. Kathy. Uh, Colleen, thank you for a topic that, as you know, is near and dear to my heart. Um, I wonder if you could comment. I think one of the other things at altitude that people are unaware of is the risk of hypothermia because the temperature goes down so quickly. Even on our Mont Cardigan hike, I always tell people to take an extra layer because mm -hmm. even at the top of Mont Cardigan is way hotter than at Mickey's when we go get ice cream afterwards. So I don't know if you have any suggestions or recommendations for people who really are going to 10, 11,000 feet um, coming from the East Coast. <laughs> um. The more layers, the better, um, I guess, is sort of the rule of thumb. Um, and then having layers that uh, are non-cotton layers, so cotton sort of holds moisture in and can um, um, make it sort of harder to stay warm, less insulating. Um, wool is sort of an old school way of staying insulated, and now there's a lot of synthetic fabrics that feel a little bit better. Um, so having multiple layers, having your outer layer be a wind shell um, can really cut some of the um, 
the sort of temperature loss from the wind and then wearing a hat. I don't know if that's helpful. One other just comment, again, a little bit of practice that um, Steve and I actually have published a wilderness medicine residency <laughs> curriculum way back in the day. So for residents, if you guys are interested, Steve and I really love this topic. We really, really do, and it's a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun to work with colleagues. <laughs> So I'll, so I'll, I'll have to take the prerogative of the last question. Based on a recent NPR report I heard, you suggested that the four-year-old at Base Camp Everest was unsafe. Has the AAP or so the, the piece was about the quest to become the youngest person to mount the, the, the peak of Everest. Has the AAP or the Society for Wilderness Medicine made any position statements about children, adolescents uh, climbing Everest that you, that you came across in your research? Uh, it's a great question. I don't, um, I don't know if I, if there's anything that's out there. I didn't come across anything. Um, I do know, sort of, in my own reading, that um, especially for um, the Sherpa population in Nepal, there are often teenagers that are part of the expeditions on Everest. Um, there's sort of some thought that perhaps their physiology, at, you know, being um, growing up at that particular altitude, is a little bit different. Um, but nobody really knows. So yeah. we don't have the QR codes, but hopefully everyone who checked in on their iPads or phones will have an email coming to you to help give some feedback on an excellent presentation by Dr. Barton. Have a great first of June.